As long as we are engaged in storytelling that moves the culture forward, it doesn't matter what format it is. LeVar Burton. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. As I look through this week, um, myself and many other folks have had to contemplate whether or not we will send our children back to school. And many of us, including myself, have made the decision to do so. Today, at the time of this recording, I am excitedly waiting to check in with my children about their first day, given um, that the pandemic is still real and they're not old enough for the vaccine. Um, We've got a lot of capturing of not just this moment and codifying this moment, but also figuring out how we start to tell this story to coming generations um, with the uh, Supreme Court decisions in Minneapolis uh, throwing out the language uh, for the uh, ballot initiative around what policing and, and public safety to experiences uh, and rises in the uh, pandemic. There's a lot of things that are happening around and We are turning our attention to the coming um, refugees from Afghanistan as the 20-year war, the longest war in U.S. history, ends. There's a lot to talk about. So, Miss Georgia, I I always turn to you to figure out what's on radar. So, what's on radar, your radar, this week? Absolutely. I have been tracking the fatal high-speed chase that happened in Maplewood over the last few days, working to learn more, connecting with the family, and trying to get information from officials. And what I've learned is a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old were uh, two of six in a vehicle that police say was stolen. And they died uh, following a crash that happened during a high-speed pursuit. The driver of that vehicle is a 15-year-old as well and is now facing charges, two counts of vehicular homicide, as well as uh, additional charges for fleeing police. But what I've learned from officials is uh, the Ramsey County Sheriff's Office, they actually don't have their pursuit policy made available publicly. Now, in Maplewood, where the crash took place, uh, they, they actually do. And so to clarify, the crash happened in Maplewood, but the pursuit was led by the Ramsey County Sheriff's Department. And so in Maplewood, their policy is that uh, high-speed pursuits are only allowed when a person is accused or has committed a uh, felony-level act of violence. And so in this case, uh, these six teens were accused of stealing this vehicle and joyriding, uh, which does not fit under that policy. But uh, there's a little bit of gray area here because although that's Maplewood's policy for their city, the pursuit was led by Ramsey County. And so, yes, Maplewood is in their jurisdiction, but they're governed by their own set of policies. And so we're working to try to get uh, access to what exactly their policy is and if they were acting within those guidelines. Meanwhile, a uh, family has set up a uh, memorial site at the place of the crash and a vigil uh, will be uh, held for them um, on Friday. So, you know, it is, it's tough. Uh, a lot of students 
students as well that I've connected with that went to school with these kids are heartbroken and devastated um, to lose their friends who were just 14 and 15 years old. You know, I was going to ask you about another um, fatal um, uh, fatal incident involving young folks. Um, but on, on this one, I, I can't help but think about the the high-speed ca- crash that, that um, killed the family of Darnella Frazier uh, over North, North Side. And again... Laniel Frazier. Laniel yeah. Frazier, sorry, yeah. Um, who, who, again, we're into the converse- conversation about policy and whether or not folks are actually following the policies that are here in front of us uh, for public safety. And it's raising those questions yet again. Um, and so with our attention towards how policy actually affects community, this is yet another example of of the residual danger uh, of what happens when 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 our police forces uh, when the question of our police forces policies come forward again, um, what what sense for 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 pushback? I know you're, you're you're getting data as it comes in, so I, and I know you're in the process of gathering that, but I'm I'm curious if our our folks um, starting to marshal to to examine or put pressure around these policies. Well, right now I know the family's demanding that there be accountability Mm -hmm. uh, altogether, regardless of what the policies are. And uh, the mother in the interview that I did with her a few days ago pointed out uh, she feels like this would never happen in Edina or Eden Prairie. And being a native of this community and having lived here my entire life, I think she's right. And so there is something to be said about public safety, uh, accountability, and or the lack thereof. When you're talking about policies and procedures, and we're also talking about accountability in the same conversation, the lack of transparency creates an environment where accountability is very challenging, if not impossible. And so because the Ramsey County Sheriff's Office is not required to have their pursuit policy publicly available, now there's this gray area of what exactly is the policy. And if you're um, dealing with um, misconduct or in some cases like where the DOJ is investigation investigating for um, corruption, right, If that's not publicly available, there is the possibility that that information could be changed, altered, right, to to evade accountability. And I'm not saying that that's what the case is here, but when you lack transparency uh, as a department that is providing a public service, the lack of transparency easily creates a culture that can evade accountability. You know, it, this isn't the first time, and, you, and, and, and it just correct me, you said Ramsey County, right? We're still in Ramsey County in this space? Correct. Yes. Okay. Um, so, you know, and I say that as somebody who grew up part, uh, much of his life in Maplewood. My family broke the racially restrictive covenants in Maplewood to even get housed, to, to live out there. Um, and so one of the things that, that comes to mind is 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 you've got this incident under question here with Ramsey County um, Sheriff's Department, but you also, you know, we, we had not too long ago Sheriff's comments about sundown towns um, in a Facebook Live event. And then you have um, uh, the Ramsey County Sheriff's where, where um, 
part of the of the task force and in in, in, in engaged uh, with the incident with Winston Smith. And so you have a department that has a lot of things that are going on right now that are that are are uh, a lot of questions are being asked about not just the leadership but also but 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 the policy as well. Are folks making those linkages um, yet that you've talked to? I know it's recent again, so just mm-hmm. tell me. I don't know oh, yet. But. Absolutely, <laughs> and to some people's surprise, Anthony uh, Marcos's mother, the the fourteen year old who was killed, his mother's name is is Tanya. I spoke with Tanya. And to some people's surprise, Tanya says that Bob Fletcher is actually a family friend. She says that during the uprising, she really tried to create healthy relationships with the Maplewood Police Department. And because of her experience with this situation, she's completely changed her stance. She Mm. went as far as to say that, you know, they were invited in her home. I mean, like good friends with, with some of the people on staff there. And she says the lack of remorse that has been expressed not only by the department, but also by Bob Fletcher, who was a family friend, uh, left a really bad taste in her mouth and has totally changed her stance. And she says she understands why people have been advocating for police accountability, because now, you know, her son is a victim of what she's saying was reckless. Um, and, And she believes it did violate the policy. We do know that it definitely violated the city's policy. And then we still have to learn whether or not Ramsey County had a similar policy or if Ramsey County allows sheriffs to have high speed pursuits, which then we may be looking to see, like, is that safe if if our children are, are losing their lives when, in essence, you know, if they're guilty of the crime that they're uh, accused of, then what is the the worst case scenario in that situation in terms of consequences? You know, probably jail time, uh, but definitely not the death penalty. You know, uh, it, it 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 makes me wonder about the the um, the the preceding quote unquote infraction or violation of law. We have uh, the Ramsey County Attorney John Choi made us made a, a a public announcement at a press conference. Uh, just yesterday, I believe, um, saying that they'll no longer prosecute low-level misdemeanor offenses, you know, slap-on-the-wrist type uh, offenses and save their resources instead for for other things and not get folks caught up in there. It makes me wonder if um, that policy had been implemented earlier or if, if, you know, if we would even get to the point of feeling like I need to run. Right. Because I can I could the consequences for dealing with something aren't going to put me into a system that I may never get out of. These are some of the, the wonderings in this conversation around how we change, how we police, how we how we do corrections, how we do a whole lot of different things. And it just it just it just leaves the wondering what where could we be had we taken some of these steps earlier and how important it is to have the pressure on these steps going forward. You know, I, I'm also uh, makes me wonder. You know, we had also a fatal shooting in North Minneapolis of another child. Um, uh, in this case, you know, at the, going to school, a 12 year old boy um, was killed. He was a sixth grader at Sojourner Truth Academy in Minneapolis, um, and, and his name is escaping me right now. And I was just just looking at it earlier, but I'm um, I'm curious what you know. In, in one side, and here in Maplewood, we have this experience. We have yet another tragedy, hap- tragedy happening in the north side. It's as we've been talking about the repeated trauma that doesn't even allow us to sit and focus on the issues surrounding George Floyd. We've we've we continue to be bombarded with issues 
both in community and again in interactions with police officers. Um, what what can you tell us, if at all, if if, if at all about the shooting on the north side? Um, uh, London Bean was his name. Well, you know, Anthony, I'm I'm heartbroken uh, because as uh, we are here to remember the 12 year old boy who was shot in Minneapolis, there's still a hundred and eighty thousand dollar reward for information leading to an arrest of the uh, two children who were shot and killed, you know, oh, that's uh, right. previously, Trinity that's right. and Ladavion. The uh, 12-year-old boy, uh, London Bean. Yes. And we have another family that is devastated, that is grieving. And uh, we're losing our children in Minneapolis. We're losing our children in Maplewood. We're, we're losing our children in St. Paul. And I, I reflect on those moments after George Floyd was murdered where you saw all of these corporations and organizations making pledges and discontinuing their contracts with the police departments. And there was so much promise and hope for change. And yet here we are a year and a half later and it still just feels like the world is crumbling around us. And I, you know, continuously try to center the voices of those who are are trying to protect Black lives. But if we're looking at the reality of what's happening in our community, we cannot deny that the public safety systems in the state of Minnesota are grossly failing Black people, Black families, Black children. And <laughs> I, I just, I got I to gotta pause because as much as we have been able to find some hopeful things to move forward, these reminders are yet again taxing. It's ridiculous. It is, it is the exhaustion that, that continues and we don't seem to be willing to do something different. That is the, that is the, the, that is the heart of the frustration for me. And this is just in Black community context spaces. We still have record numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women, and we still won't do things differently. We have to fight even being willing to do something and think about something differently. I can imagine even the pushback that Attorney Choi got in in making this decision, which was. Uh, has been in conversation for a long time, and I can only and, and there's the exhaustion of the community. But then I got to wonder about your exhaustion, the exhaustion of those of journalists who are reporting the stories, are keeping the stories, as our opening quote you know says, regardless of the format, keeping these stories going forward. That's got to be exhausting as well. I I don't understand why we are unwilling to think about and even imagine a different way of doing things when we see the results of what we're doing now. That is problematic for me. Absolutely. Uh, it makes me think of a conversation that I had with one of our community healers, Resma Menikim, and he, he asked me, how are you doing, sis? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. And he was like, no, no. How are you doing. And this will live with me because we have this tendency, especially as journalists, to do this thing that he calls 
override, where you override your emotion, you override the trauma response, you override the way that you're impacted by what you're reporting on. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized I have to create spaces for myself. And I I encourage my journalism uh, colleagues to do the same. Create space where you, you don't override anymore. And so it's gotten to a point for me, Anthony, where absolutely it, it's hard to con- continuously take taking the stuff in. I mean, to the point where I was in D.C. for the March on Washington, and two days before I arrived, the police killed somebody. They killed Antoine Gilmore, and they released the body camera footage. I couldn't watch it. Mm. I just, I am so tired of seeing Black men killed by police. I'm tired of looking at that footage. I'm tired of reporting on that footage. I'm tired of editing that footage. I still haven't watched it to this day. Uh, And so, you know, it's out there. And when I report on it, I let people know that they can go watch it. But I mean, even on a personal level, and I I have friends who, who say this as well, Anthony is like, you could be driving on 94 and the police get behind you and you just feel all of that anxiety mm-hmm. and you feel the trauma response. I feel it just thinking images, about that. Yeah. Yeah. Those images flash before your your face, you know, like they they just they're imprinted, they're ingrained in your mind that, well, if this cop decides to pull me over and it doesn't go well. I might be the next person whose dash cam, body cam footage people are looking at, you know? Hmm. Um, and, and so I feel that and my heart beats fast and I, I, you know, my breath, I lose my breath until they pass and then I'm able to regroup myself. But that is, that is, that is the place where you can't override. It's, it's trauma. Your, bo- your body has internalized the trauma of what you've experienced and witnessed. You know, I, 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 I'm really curious to see um, what our guest, uh, who is also a journalist, has to say about this. But what you, what, you, what you bring up reminds me of heading to, you know, self-care. I try to be like you and do some self-care. And, and we have an annual trip to a friend of mine who's invited all of us city folks of color to their cabin because uh, they have a family tradition of a cabin in central Minnesota. And um, on my way out, it was nighttime and one of my headlights went out, was out. And I had an encounter with a, with a, with a, uh, an officer um, and the officer pulls me over. And because of the busyness of the lane, it came to my passenger side. I was expecting him to come to the, to the driver's side. And so when he showed up on the passenger side, I jumped, right? Only not for any other reason. The anxiety and stuff like that that you just described was still there. But I jumped because I was expecting him in one space and all of a sudden somebody's standing in the window on the other side, right? He sees me jump and he he says, oh, did you expect me on the other side? I I really didn't mean to startle you. I wanted to let you know that your, your headlight is out and it seems like the other one was flickering too, right? And in the moment, we both, in that moment, it... I know what was coming through my head, but I also saw him in it, just disappointment on his face um, because he knew what was going through my head and I knew what was going through his head. And both of us owe our families a going home. 
at the end of the day. And it's gotten to this point where, where we don't seem to be in real dialogue for wanting to do something different. And yet both of us or all of us are, are yearning for a different way of being. Right. And and this is the thing that is boggling my mind. Nobody is being served by what we are doing right now. Nobody. And yet we can't seem to get past a real vehement opposition to doing something different. This is problematic for me. And this 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 experience actually ended up well. We tried to overcorrect because of this same thing. He escorted me to to a gas station, found a spot, called a friend actually, uh, who who um, came over and opened up the, the the local auto shop in this in this kind of small town space? It got me it got me a set of headlights, and we realized it was an electrical problem. and And he said, "All right, we'll take care of that when you when you can." And we were over overly trying to take care of each other because of this exact is challenge, and yet we can't seem to muster the will to make changes that will make that will make that kind of, of, of exchange not even be an issue anymore. This is problematic for me. I wanna, I wanna bring in our guest. Neil Justin works with the Minneapolis Star Tribune and I'll let, I'll let him uh, introduce himself and then I'd love to get, Neil, your reactions to what you've heard me and Georgia talking so far after you introduce yourself to the community. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Uh, I cover entertainment at the Star Tribune, primarily television and radio, uh, but I also cover stand-up comedy and fill in and music and theater uh, when I can. Um, I Before coming to the Minneapolis Star Tribune, I was a crime reporter and a regional reporter in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, so it's been a while since I've covered some of these heavy issues that you two are so eloquently talking about. But of course, in the world of entertainment, one of the reasons I cover television is it can be a mirror to what's going on in America. And I think in some cases can be an influence sometimes good, sometimes bad on, on what's going on in the country. Now, I, I know I was excited for you to come onto the show to talk about some of those things, but as we have found here on Bearing Witness, we don't get down the road too far to 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 those hopeful spaces before the harsh reality of our current experience comes up. So I'm curious, what, what comes up for you as you were listening to some of the things that Ms. George is covering and that we've been discussing uh, in this first part? I think one of the things I've been thinking about a lot as a journalist and just as a human being in this last year, uh, I've spent the last 25 years of my life uh, fighting for diversity in the newsroom. I've been involved in uh, many organizations, including uh, being president of Unity uh, for, uh, for journalists um, and uh, being on the board of the Asian American Journalist Association. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this subject and uh, fighting for it. But I'm not a black man. Uh, my family's from India. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Iowa. I can't, no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I think about this subject, I can never be in Anthony's shoes. Um, I can never be in a woman's shoes. Uh, when they're dealing with, uh, when they've been talking about the Me Too movement and, and other important issues. And I think it's important to remember that uh, no matter how hard we try, um, we can't fully understand what other people are going through and the pain they go through uh, when these issues come up. We need to be empathetic. Uh, 
And we need to listen, listen, listen. And if anything, I think this last year, I hope, has instilled that in more Americans. It certainly has with me. Um, and instead of trying to uh, pretend that I can fully understand what it's like to be a black man in America, I'll never get there. Uh, and I think it's important for us to remember that. And, and that's why it's so important that we work harder to get diversity in our newsroom. Because no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard my bosses try, um, we're not going to fully be able to understand these issues and move forward unless people that can relate to what it's like to be in fill in the blanks uh, shoes are actually working with you side by side. Absolutely. And uh, would you talk about the diversity in the newsroom? Um, could you speak to you know, where your organization was on that and, and maybe where they are now and how the murder of George Floyd impacted the company's culture? Sure. The Star Tribune, like most newsrooms across America, uh, has not done a tremendous job when it comes to diversity. We've done better than most, um, especially considering the demographics of Minnesota. Um, but it's not enough. Um, uh, and one of the problems we've had uh, in Minneapolis at the Star Tribune, and I think as a community is, we do do a fairly good job of recruiting people of color. We have a hard time keeping them. Uh, that's been particularly true among Blacks and Hispanics. Uh, I think the paper uh, is aware of that and is making steps to uh, deal with that. I think it's a problem we have in this community. Uh, as a whole, it's funny. We just had a, a flurry of hires um, in the past uh, year and a half of Asian Americans at the newsroom. We've done a pretty good job with representation of Asian Americans at the Star Tribune. We've had a much harder time uh, recruiting and keeping uh, blacks and Hispanics. Uh, and that's something we have to deal with. We have a lot of work to do, uh, but we're having those conversations much more than we used to. It doesn't mean we've solved the problem uh, or problems, as I should say. Uh, I've always said that the most important thing we need to do is, as I said before, uh, fill our newsrooms with people from various backgrounds. And that's not just people of color, uh, but that includes sexual orientation, religious background, political background, regional background, I think is really important. We don't talk about that enough. Um, the experiences somebody has growing up in a small town uh, like I did, uh, they're different than the experiences somebody has growing up in an urban area. Uh, these are things I think we need to address across the board. And, and we're making progress, but we still got work to do. You know, it, one of the things that you that you bring up in that, that the, the retention of people of color. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this, this has been something that we've, we've discussed, you know, before and experienced before. Um, and it gets back to, to, to something I was, was saying earlier in, in, in this space is our unwillingness to, 
to really address and change culture. You know, culture, you know, I have a business partner and he, he gets this quote from someplace else. I just can't place, I can't remember where it's from. My brain's not doing that for me today. And usually it's very good at it. But um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So, so we get folks in the door, but if we aren't changing the internal cultures, if we aren't changing the internal networks, if we aren't um, doing that, you know, we don't retain them. And this isn't unique to, to, to the newsroom or the Star Tribune. School no. districts have the same issue retaining teachers of color for various reasons. Um, if I already have a high-stress job low with, that's not paid at, the, at a particular rate and companies around who, who, who are like, teachers make really good employees, um, I'm going to come and snatch them up. I get to pay you more money, most, more money for less stress. But then also, you know, our internal cultures, um, you know, uh, valuing the full perspectives of folks here, giving leadership positions to folks uh, of color that aren't just for checking off that box, that actually come exactly. with budgets and power and actual decision-making. You know, there's a whole lot of those pieces. And so to me, there's an underlying piece of, are we willing to do more than just address surface needs? Are we willing to actually deal with the internal cultural spaces that will make it more conducive um, and not... Uh, you're in the door now. Assimilate to this particular cultural way of being, and you'll be fine. Don't, and you're going to have a hard time, and then you're going to go find places where you don't have to worry about doing that assimilative space. And I think that problem is compounded uh, a little bit in Minnesota. I'm not a big fan of regional stereotypes, but and I'd be interested to hear Georgia's thoughts on this too. Growing up in Minnesota, we have this reputation for Minnesota nice, uh, which I think means that we have good manners. And people are fairly polite here. I don't know how nice we are. Uh, I would say that Minnesotans will be the first person, first people to say hello to you and ask how you are, but they'll be the last people to invite you to their house for dinner. Uh, and I think coming to Minnesota, I came here in my mid-20s, um, so it was a little bit different. It was easier to make friends. But if you come here later in your life, uh, it can be very lonely, Uh and you compound that by the fact if you're black or, or Asian American or Hispanic or, and you don't feel you have a, a community in here. And then even if there is a community in our sort of passive aggressive way, people don't reach out to you in a real way. You can look around and say, this ain't worth it. This is a good job. I like the community here, but I'm lonely um, and I'm going to go to a community I feel more uh, more connected with. Uh, so. I think everything you're saying is right, Anthony, but I think we have a little harder problem here because we have a, a real hesitancy to connect with people, no matter what their race is. Absolutely. And what would you say are, you know, solutions to that? Like how, how do we disrupt the culture here and, and make it more welcoming? And, and how do we go into the the smaller communities that really have no diversity, especially now when you're looking at the fact that our governor has invited uh, Afghan allies to to come here to Minnesota, uh, and knowing how unwelcoming sometimes uh, we can be, how do we how do we address that? Um, have you spent any time in your career exploring solutions for for that specifically? I have, and I, I've thought about it a lot in my uh, off hours, uh, and I'm sure you can relate to this, Georgia, you know, as you travel uh, quite extensively. Um, we are, many workplaces are integrated um, to a certain extent. But you go out at night 
in almost every city in America, small or big, uh, look around how many people look like you. Um, when you go to a concert, when you go to a restaurant, uh, when you go to the theater, how many people look like you? Um, and what I find uh, almost wherever I go is that uh, we're very segregated in our personal lives. Some of that has to do with where you live, but I think part of that has to do with the comfort level. And I think one of the things we can do here as individuals, and particularly as journalists, is in our off hours, get out of our quote unquote comfort zones. Um, you know, if you live in, in the Twin Cities and you're going out for dinner, um, go somewhere in a neighborhood you've never been to before. Go to university in Frogtown. Uh, go to Eat Street. Go out to the suburbs uh, in certain pockets um, that you may not be familiar with. Go see uh, a theater uh, with the black cast and, and vice versa. Um, and do that with other people that are new to the community as well. Uh, I think if we only talk about diversity and understanding each other within the workplace, uh, we're not going to get very far. Uh, it needs to extend to our personal life. Go to a church you've never been to before. Uh, and it's, it's particularly, uh, disappointing when we don't do that as journalists, um, because that's part of our, that should be part of our DNA. And I think we, as everybody can do, get caught up in what's comfortable, what we're used to. We're going to go to the same bars. We're going to go to the same restaurants, right? Um, and I think uh, and, until we open our eyes and welcome other people to do the same thing and get to know people on, on an off, uh, off the clock basis, uh, we're going to be stuck in the, in the same ruts. But I'm sure you've seen that in your travels, George. Everywhere I go, I uh, almost uh, without exception, I, I see that in, in just about everything. Absolutely. Well, that 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 in right there is is it, it it's starting to to needle at this thing, right? You, you yeah. I think it's there when we talk about Minnesota nice. The 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 distinction you made between you know being polite. And actually being uh, welcoming, there's this. It's not the same. We conflate the two, right? Uh, we yeah. do nice well, but we also avoid tripping over each other, which is where learning happens, which is where right. we we grow in that. And so, if we aren't willing to do that in our interactions, then we don't um, build real relationship, right? I think that's what you're getting to, and 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 who we and and how we are segregated. You know, it's one thing for the presence of people of color in a space. It's a different thing for real relational connection amongst and between uh, between folks that gets us to the types of stories, the types of, uh, to get us to actually have a pulse on what's happening, right? If you make decisions as a reporter about what we're, what is essential in a particular story, is there something, and you alluded to this, right? Having folks in the newsroom to lend the perspective actually will give you a better sense of that's not actually the question that this community is looking for. We're actually wondering about this question or this issue over here. Um, and so I'm curious for you, as an entertainment reporter, you are, are, are in a space of being able to deliver or, or, or put things in front of folks um, that get us to go beyond dominant culture understandings of, or what would, be, um, what would be important to a community like Edina. How do you put things on, 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 on the table in your reporting that are 
valuable for folks who are in a different community or a different context, racially, culturally, all of that. How are you finding ways to do that and bring that story forward in your own reporting? Well, it's one of the reasons I chose to cover television as opposed to some other entertainment formats. It's much easier for uh, somebody in Edina to watch a show like Lovecraft Country, which I think has, it's a good entertaining horror show, but it also has a lot to say about race in America uh, in in a very thoughtful way and also entertaining way. It's much easier for that, you know, fictional family in Edina to learn through Lovecraft Country than it is going to the Penumbra Theater, although they should go to the Penumbra Theater or go to Mixed Blood Theater or some of the other great or, or uh, theatrical experiences. Um, uh, so it has that potential as, as uh, I think, uh, very uh, at, uh, accurately. Uh, Joe Biden said when he was vice president that Will and Grace probably did more for understanding of, of uh gay relationships and, and, and confronting homophobia, uh, that Will and Grace did more than maybe anything else in this country, any political speech could do. Uh, now that's not common, but it happens. And I think television can do that in a lot of subtle ways and sometimes more, more direct ways. Uh, so I, I find that fascinating. So you try to put the spotlight on shows that are, are doing that. Uh, I'm just watching um, a, a preview for a new procedure on CBS, NCIS Hawaii. Uh, it's not very good, but um, the lead is an Asian-American woman, and she kicks ass. Um, so I'm going to write about that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I'm going to point out that uh, that's pretty uncommon for a network procedure to have a woman of color in, in a lead position. Uh and, and I think that makes it more appealing than if it was uh, another white dude uh, calling the shots. You can't necessarily hit people over the head with a hammer every week. Sometimes I'll do that. Uh, but a lot of times you just mentioned in passing this is going on and check this out. You might learn something. You, you might be entertained by this. And I think in the long run, Maybe I'm kidding myself, but I think it can make a difference. You know, I'm I'm, I'm curious. I'm I'm just gonna go there because you know I'm 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 sometimes a habitual line stepper. So 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 I want to put a scenario in your in your place. So so, so given yeah. what you said in in, in Georgia and in, in, in Neil, I'm curious for both of you, right? So I gave a quote at the beginning of our podcast from Lavar Burton. Yeah, and um, I was. Extremely, uh, uh, there are hopes that were rising both in my community, um, in my household, <laughs> um, amongst my friends groups, and I just knew that we're in a moment we're about to see Lavar Burton take over the Je- Jeopardy podcast, and then all of a sudden, all that came out. I'm curious how you all are covering that and and discussing that as journalists. Um, this opportunity that quite frankly, I thought was an inevitability at the beginning because it just made all the sense in the world to me. And then to hear how that went down, how, <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I, I want to get your thoughts on that. And it's part of the reason why I chose that LeVar Burton quote in the beginning is because I've had this question in the back of my mind for a while. So, so Georgia and Neil, yeah, I'm curious. I'm, I'm excited to hear his thoughts on this too. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, television, like a lot of forms of entertainment, uh, is very hesitant to be first in anything. 
They, they want to copy what's been successful before. And in the world of daytime game shows, what's been successful before is white dudes. I mean, think about it. How many hosts can you think of that have been women or people of color in the history of, of game shows? Um, I could think of Steve Harvey, Family Feud. Dang, you took um, the one I was thinking of. That's it. Yeah, right? Right. And Meredith <laughs> Vieira did uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? That's right. Wayne Brady did Let's Make a Deal. But um, if you listed the top 25 most successful game show hosts of all time, I think they'd all be white dudes. Uh, so, you know, nobody's going to say out loud that they were worried if LeVar Burton was the host of Jeopardy that the ratings were going to tank. I happen to think that's a show that I'm not sure how much it matters who, who the host is, but uh, let's let, let's play with the assumption that it does matter. And obviously it matters to you, Anthony. And again, this goes back to my point <laughs> uh, that that means something to a black man that, um, you know, I can't necessarily, I know I can't relate to. Um, but look, the people in charge are white dudes. Um, the guy that was in charge gave himself the job. <laughs> you know that that would that would never happen in the black community, right? Um, uh, so I don't think it, it's out of the question that Lavar Burton could still get that gig. Really? Uh, well, they haven't picked anybody yet, and um, um, Lavar Burton um, hasn't gotten in any trouble, right? I mean, they keep digging up uh, one thing after another on people. As far as I know, they haven't named anybody yet. Uh, but, you know, to me in the long run, I think it, it, it's a good stepping off point for, for a conversation. Uh, but what I care about more than LeVar Burton getting that job is uh, a person of color running that studio. Mm. Is a person of color being the producer of that show. That's where the power is. And we're seeing that uh, right now. I want to see a person of color running NBC. Um that to me ultimately is infinitely more important. Um, and uh, I mean, I like LeVar Burton. I think he'd do a good job. But in the long run, they can stick people in and out. We've seen that before. Uh, we're not going to see real change uh, until the people in the suits uh, represent diversity. Yeah, no, that, that's powerful. I feel like because television is such a visual platform, the audience gets so caught up in having visual representation, but not really realizing the power of the, the names uh, at the end of these shows, like the credits, yeah. right? Examining how many of those people are representing diverse communities. And so I think you bring up a, a powerful point here. And I'm just fascinated by the intersectionality of the work that you're doing as an entertainment reporter and and how that connects to racial equity. Have have you had any times in you know the last year or two being here? I know it's been really intense at different moments. Have have you had any points professionally where you reflected on like your own, you know, responsibility or your own contribution, what you can do in your role to help make uh, things more equitable for people of color? That's a great question. I mean, I, I'd like to think that that I've been doing that for a, a long time. But as I said a little while ago, 
I think since the death of, of George Floyd, I do think that I've realized that I need to listen more and, uh, and shut my mouth. Um, I can be a pretty big talker. And uh, one of the things I've tried to do in the last couple of years is uh, keep my mouth shut and listen more. And uh, I started to realize how important that was a few years ago with, with the rise of the Me Too movement coming up. Um, and, uh, you know, when I watch cable news and, and I try not to watch a lot of it because I think it's mentally uh, unhealthy to watch more than 45 minutes of cable news in a day. Uh, I see all these white dudes talking about race and, uh, or all these men talking about, uh, women's rights. Uh, and it's frustrating. Um, and I'm going back to what I what I said before. It's not that you can't have an opinion on those things, but uh, if you're not having that conversation with somebody that can relate directly to the subject uh, based on the color of their skin or, or based on their gender, shut the conversation down. I mean, it just it it, it loses value to me, um, and uh, it just becomes. Uh, it's made me more uncomfortable than, than it has in the past. So I, I guess in, in, in trying to answer your question more directly, Georgia, I think it's become more important to me that when I'm talking about these subjects that I have representation from people that uh, can relate better than I can, if that makes sense. So, so, you know, and 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 I I absolutely get that get that you know that importance of listening and truly understanding so that the the nuances and perspectives of communities who haven't had that voice in there can 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 come through in our writing. How are you seeing that change? How you write? Um, like what like that next that next step in there? So so you've got that perspective in there. You're checking it against the folks who are actually having the experience, but you're the one that gets the pin. Like you got the you get to 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 actually put the pin to paper and get that out. And so, you know, how are you, how are you seeing that change, how you write or how you present um, new stories and articles and things like that? What, what are the influences that this listening is having and, and changing how you write? If, you know, it, it, that's it. That's the question. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's a great question. I, I think maybe I'm too close to it. I mean, again, you think as a journalist that you're doing this fantastic job all the time. Then you look back up. A few years later, and go, oh boy, was I? Uh, I wasn't as informed as I should have been. Uh, it certainly, I've been lucky at the Star Tribune when I've wanted to write about gender, or race, or representation. Uh, I've never been told not to. Uh, but nationally, I would say that I'm seeing more of that conversation. Um, sometimes I worry that those in Hollywood are just having those conversations because they feel they have to. Um, and they feel like they're doing a good deed uh, just by just by addressing it. You know what I mean? Uh, but then things go back to, to the same old, same old behind the scenes. So one of my concerns I've had, and this is true in entertainment, and, and this is true in journalism, I've heard this song before. You know, every every eight or nine years, we have a come to Jesus moment um, on diversity and representation, and it becomes the hot topic. 
and then it goes away or falls down the ladder, right? And in the end, we move two steps up and maybe one step back. That, that still puts us a step up, uh, but we're still not quite as far along as we thought we were going to be. And, and I worry about that's already starting to happen in entertainment, in journalism, across, across the board, that people feel like we've made a lot of progress and now it's time to uh, move on to, to another subject. Um, you know, and, and again, I see this as a cycle uh, every few years and, and we do move forward a little bit. Uh, but I am worried that this conversation is going to uh, dissipate if it hasn't already a little bit. Um, and uh, that those of us who feel passionately about this uh, don't lose heart. I don't know if you guys are feeling that way. Do you feel like uh, the conversation is at the same level as it was last year? Or are you guys starting to worry too that people are maybe getting tired of this and, and, and want to move on to something else? Absolutely. I think uh, I, I've observed now the, the most telling moment to me was covering the the crime scene of uh, Winston Smith mm-hmm. and uh, just not seeing the same amount of people there and then uh, following that and just not seeing the same type of response that happened following Dalal E, Dante Wright, and of course, George Floyd. So yes, the urgency has dissipated the momentum has has dissipated um and and without any tangible change it feels like i mean sure there were it felt like a few low hanging uh bills that that moved forward but for the most part the ones that would truly make a difference didn't pass and on a federal level the george floyd policing act has not passed so i i do think that um you are absolutely correct or i share your your thoughts and perspectives of this you know it's a, a trend it feels like every few years where it's it's the thing to do and every you know it's the priority top priority for everyone until it's not even if that means moving on without real change and and that's why it's important just circle back on on people that are holding the reins that we focus on that you know as anthony was talking about lavar burden yeah i mean i think that's the subject we're talking about but the content of that show lavar burton's not writing the questions um, he's, he's reading off of cue cards and, and note cards. Um, uh, you know, we, in the, in the media do a lot of stories on anchors, you know, God bless them. Uh, we have very good anchors here in the twin cities, but they're reading off teleprompters, right? They're not, some of them are, are having a say in the news that's being covered, but most of them aren't. Um, so I think it, sometimes we put so much focus on who's in front of the camera, um, when the real long-term solutions are going to be, who are your news directors? Who are your executive editors of papers? Who are your producers? Uh, here's a little unknown secret. Georgia, you know this, but most people don't. The producers are the ones in TV news that do 80% of the work, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And nobody knows their name. Um, are we encouraging? Or knows you? their faces. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And uh, I always laugh at 60 Minutes. These correspondents win every award in the world and, and are heralded as these important journalists. Well, 
you and I both know that most of those correspondents fly in the night before their big interview, have a steak dinner, and read off questions that a team of producers have been working on for three or four months. Um, and yet it, it's it, it's your Steve Crofts, you know, to get all the credit. Um, so they're not the most glamorous jobs. They're not the one. Anthony's not going to – he's going to be more worried about LeVar Burton than whoever the producer of Jeopardy is. Um, uh, and that that's the way it's going to be, right? Because there are people that are in front of the camera, and we love that. But – in terms of long-term change, it's those people behind the scenes that I think we need to focus on because they're the ones that can uh, not only make changes now, but uh, set the table for, for those who come uh, next and uh, hopefully that they're mentoring uh, when they get in those positions. You know, in defense of Jordy LaForge, a.k.a. LeVar Burton, uh, <laughs> and, and the importance of that, right? Um, it's 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 the the nuance of all of the above, right? The long, deep structural change with going all the way back to our first conversations, um, you know, the willingness to do the deep structural change work is not being felt in many levels on the, on the ground in policy, in procedure, in practice, and even in conversation. Of course, in entertainment, we have the same thing. We want to have the structural change of who's calling the shots and who's getting to, as you said earlier, you diversify that newsroom that gives you a, a, a more folks to be able to weigh in on what is important to more communities than just our dominant culture communities. But then there are these things that come up like this Jeopardy, and it's just an example, a, a, a surface example of, of something larger where the person who who we venerate for inspiring and being in the front and, and being the, fa the, the person that we engage with as kids to read in, during Reading Rainbow, um, would ma makes all the sense in the world to be the face of this show that carries with it our, our willingness to keep deep, to, 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 to be smart, right? Uh, how many times have I sat with my grandmother and my aunties playing and watching Jeopardy and they're, 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 egging me on to call out the answers to stuff, right? It's, right. it's the represent, you know, you, this, this person then becomes a representation of knowledge, right? And as a person who works with, with young folks, you know, we, we are still fighting to eradicate this notion that how, somehow smart means less black and more white, right? right. And so I get that. Yeah. And, I mean, and, I think so, that's an excellent point. Uh, yeah. and, and I, I've always said, people ask, well, what's the greatest TV show of all time? And, and very often I answer Sesame Street. And one of the reasons it's the greatest show of all time is the diversity that show had. The people that were on camera. I was a kid growing up in a small town in Iowa. Um, there weren't a lot of people of color there. Um, and yet here I was in this urban neighborhood learning how to spell and count and all that good stuff. Um, and... That show's still on the air and it does it with humor and it does it in a very natural way. It doesn't uh, hit, hit you over the head with the hammer. So your point's well taken, Anthony. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons it's a great show because the people on, you know, in front, in front of the camera were people of color. So I get that. But I think it's time that we start talking beyond just that. Well, yeah, and that's and that's this is that's actually the point that I'm I'm trying to 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 get to both in our early conversations and 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 this one both in terms of representation of who's in there and representation of who's making it. We have we know that there are capable, talented, 
brilliant folks who can take all of those roles from the producer to the front of the camera. The, all the tools are right there. What I am seeing is, an, is, an, is a, a lack of will to just push the go button and 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 this is what I'm um um this is what is getting me stuck a little bit is 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 like if we're if we're sitting around here and we can see exactly what we need to do in front of us and we can beat that to the dead horse going back and forth and all it takes is for us to do it what is the thing that is stopping us from actualizing this particular uh, the, the the folks behind the camera, the folks in front of the camera. We now even know that black works, you know, things produced by black, um, for, you know, Georgia to 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 something like that. Our producer Lee says all the time, Georgia's in the, Georgia's killing the game doing this very thing. Um, and so thank you. <laughs> and so we 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 have the ingredients. We have the oven. The temperature has actually the the, the oven's at the right temperature. Yeah. Everything is set up for it. But we seem to not be able to just go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I'll also say I did not expect Neil to say uh, <laughs> that about Sesame Street of, of all shows. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. But, I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think about uh, Ava DuVernay, who mm-hmm. has now launched an entire um, kind of sub company to basically find the producers and and find um the the audio engineers and find all the people behind the scenes so that there can be you know these full productions ran totally by people of color um i don't i haven't heard of that in the television industry except for maybe you know with like own or tyler perry or Issa Rae. Uh, but you know, it, it is needed and, and all of the things are there, but this is so parallel to all of the other industries, all of the other sectors. I don't think that it's exclusive just to entertainment or TV or film. Like this is the same problem that we're having across all sectors in Minnesota. Specifically, you can look at all of these Fortune 500 companies who are headquartered here who are failing at uh, recruiting and retaining, the key being they're retaining professionals of color, and not just in Minnesota, but in the Midwest region. And so I I don't know what that is, but it, it's easy to default to it being systematic racism because you have the talent that's qualified, that's out there, that's looking for work. So why is it so hard, like you said, Anthony, to to push the go button? Let, let me drop a little optimism in here. Uh, I mean, let, let's look at some of the good things we're seeing in television right now. Uh, there's a miniseries that, that just debuted, Impeachment, uh, looks back at the Monica Lewinsky, uh, Bill Clinton affair. Uh, almost entirely run by women, uh, uh, directed by women, uh, written by women. Um, it has a different perspective, I think, uh, than if that show had been made 10 years ago by men. It's seen almost entirely through uh, female eyes. And as I wrote last week, I think it gives you a different take on that scandal, certainly a different take than, than when it happened. Uh, we finally had a woman, only the second ever, win Best Director and Best Film at the Oscars this past year, a woman of color. Uh, for Nomadland, uh, Jordan Peele's knocking it out of the park, um, and uh, it, it's gaining some power. 
I mean, I think we're seeing progress. And, and let me tell you another area that's really exciting, I think, here in the Twin Cities. And that's the stand-up uh, scene. Uh, I encourage uh, your listeners and the two of you, if you haven't been to a comedy club in the Twin Cities recently, go. Um, I've been covering comedy off and on for 20 years, but in a more serious way in the last six or seven years. I'm at the clubs once or twice a week. I was just at a comedy festival in Bloomington, Indiana, where at least half the participants, there must have been 50, 60 comics there, half were women. I'd say a third were uh, people of color. Uh, there were trans stand-up comics. Um, you look here in the Twin Cities, there's a number of really, really promising Muslim comics coming up and uh, female comics coming up. Uh, that's very exciting. These are all new talent um, that are going to be making a stamp uh, in entertainment in the next few years. Uh, so there's reason to be optimistic. It's happening. Somebody pressed the go button, um, but it, it's not the um, it, it's not the fastest system. Uh, but I am uh, you asked before about this last year. I'm coming out of this more optimistic than I've ever been. Um, I am seeing pride. As I said before, I am worried that at some point uh, we'll take a step back again, but we'll have made progress in, in the meantime. I think there are reasons to not completely despair. Well, and so, and it's to this point, and I want to ask you how you're being you as we wrap up here. Um, but, yeah. you know, one of the things I think needs to be on the radar of current institutions because we 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 have examples of progress in changing institutions that historically haven't done that but we also given the examples that were already given Jordan Peele Nicole DaCosta for Candyman direction in this in this most recent one which I thought was unique and excellent and interesting for a whole lot of different reasons um reservation dogs um mm -hmm. you know it was so I, I'm seeing the momentum and the progress on my side uh, and the reasons for hope actually coming from folks who are jettisoning, even trying to go through these traditional paths of these historical organizations. And I think that should be of particular concern to these longstanding institutions who, who are folks are going, you know what, I'm not willing to, 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 to do the slow change over time and, and, and bleed for, to, to, to move the needle a little bit. I'd rather just go with Ava DuVernay and, 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 and Owen and all these other folks in places where we're just going to control our own content. Georgia, you, you're inspiration in that space, right? Of being able to tell the story of, of being the editorial control seat um, and, and all of that. Um, even this podcast and, the, and, the, um, and another sister podcast, Counter Stories, are, are produced and all completely by folks of color. And so I think, um, you know, there's a, I have a hopefulness too, but because I'm a habitual line stepper and button pusher, um, my, my hopefulness comes in folks realizing that they may get scooped. Is that, is that, is that a term to use for, with journalists? Right? Yeah, you, we you, use that term. These folks, these folks may get scooped by um, uh, production houses that are completely run by folks of color uh, because they're not willing to, to, to waste any more time trying to get and convince other folks to listen. We just go and make the content ourselves and then enter into a conversation for, you know, for in that way and push the needle that way. That's well, one of the, the things that excites me. Either or, it's both. Uh, you're right. There are people coming um, outside the mainstream, uh, coming out on the outside track, but there are also people working within the mainstream, like Shonda Rhimes. Um, and to a certain extent, Ryan Murphy. I mean, 
And, and the same thing is true in journalism. Yes, we need alternative voices like what you guys are doing, not going down the mainstream path, but that doesn't take the mainstream off the hook too. We have work to do as well. So I think the solution is, is, is both. Uh, and, and I am seeing signs of work that, that both are happening in entertainment and in journalism. Well, we got to wrap up. So I want to ask this question of, that we ask of every single one of our guests as we close. How are you being you in this current moment? One of the things I've done for the last couple of years is uh, take road trips, either by myself or with one friend. A lot of times by myself, um, get in the car and drive. And I ended up doing that quite a few times during the pandemic. It was really the only way to travel. It was the safest way to travel. Um, and a lot of time by myself. And I really encourage people to do I'm going to be doing it again in, in a couple of weeks. I'm going up to the northeast part of the country, um, see some parts of New York, uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, take a week and a half to just drive through that area uh, without really any agenda. And I've found those trips very cathartic. And, and I can feel myself itching for another one. I wish it was next week. Um, uh, and I don't, I try not to do any work during that time. And you learn so much, especially when you travel by yourself and you stop in diners uh, and, uh, you know, little motels and uh, catch local entertainment and stop in little small town museums and take walks in parks and uh, meet people in big cities and small and do a lot of listening and observing. And you can do that when you're by yourself. You guys know what I mean, right? Um, where you can be a spy a little bit better. Uh, and I found that uh, very uh, educational and uh, sort of peaceful. It's sort of my version of yoga because uh, I wouldn't be caught dead doing yoga or meditating. Um, but driving across America in these pockets uh, that are often overlooked uh, has helped me um, find some peace uh, when work gets too much and find some peace in this, in this crazy year. It's something I recommend to folks to, to try out. Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? Oh, by getting back to work, it feels <laughs> like uh, the pace of things have just picked up after maybe a few weeks of having a little bit of a break, it felt like. And so now uh, as we're preparing um, for preliminary hearings in the uh, trials for the other three officers um, for the murder of George Floyd, and then also preparing now for the uh, trial for the officer who fatally shot Dante, right? Like things are just picking back up again. And so I am being me by just fully engrossing myself in work again, but approaching it this time with, I'd say, a little more wherewithal to keep the balance uh, because it, at the beginning of the year, it, around springtime, it just got really, really hard to keep that balance. And so uh, definitely things are picking up and working hard to, to keep that balance. What about you, Anthony? So for me, I am immersing myself in narratives, stories, movies, and, and content that is created by BIPOC folks exclusively without the need to try to make sense to dominant cultural space. 
I, I say that with that fine line uh, so much because um, it's in there that I get to see myself reflected most, and um, I actually get to relax. I, I, I'll tell you this 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 example. Uh, so I took my daughter to see Candyman, right? And I know my grandma's gonna gonna really cuss me out for taking my daughter to this <laughs> daggone movie. Um, but um, I, I, I took her there because um, Candyman represents something interesting, and I think it's an interesting thing to chew on. We have two white directors and writers who did the first two movies, but it was definitely investigating the. Um, Afrocentric storytelling and trying to to wrestle and play with it and, and massage that a little bit, right? Second one got a little commercial for me, but it was still good for me because uh, it scared the mess out of me. But this third one was for me, about me, and to me in ways that um, the white folks in the theater with us, me and my daughter were reacting to things that they weren't reacting to at all. And, and, and that mattered. Um, and we left not necessarily seeing a scary movie, although there were some jump scares. We, we left having something happen for us, by us, on our behalf in a way that made us go, man, I really like that. And we overheard the conversation of white folks leaving and they were freaked out by the movie. And, um, and I'm here for that. It's the same way that Lovecraft Country does. I think Jordan Peele, um, Ava DuVernay, and, 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 and uh, Nicole DeCosta, a lot of these folks are starting to find a voice that, do, that, is not, that, that does not require the understanding of dominant cultural space. And I think the more that happens across communities, the more we're going to get content that's going to be unique, interesting, and quite frankly, new. I know Candyman's a bad example of this because we don't seem to be making new stuff. We keep remaking old things in a different way. But I think new stuff's going to come, and it's going to come from folks who stop trying to make sense or be understood by, by dominant cultural space and offer something completely new, which I, in turn, I think will be appealing to a wider group of folks. And so I find myself looking for those and immersing those, and it's starting to really energize me. So that's how I'm being me in this moment. I, I want to thank, thank you, Neil, for coming on and, and Miss Georgia for, for getting us started and contextualizing. And I want to I, I make sure that to tie the through line that as we talk about representation and narrative and story and, and the willingness to do new things and push new boundaries, I'm just hoping that we'd be willing to do that same thing that we see starting to happen to your point, Neil, around the hope in the entertainment field that we start applying very similar things to structure and change in terms of policy and practice. Because while while we're thinking about what we consume in content, we're still losing babies, drowning in the well that we don't seem to want to plug up. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, and we always end with this, with our patron quote from our patron community healer. So I'm going to kick it to you, Ms. Georgia. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.